Our scripture passage for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 13. We will be reading uh, the, the narrative about the weeds and Jesus' interpretation about the weeds. So we'll be leaving out verses 31 to 35 in our reading this morning. Hear now the word of God. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels." Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we are not dealing with a simple passage today, nor are we dealing with an easy subject. The truth is, we as your people do fall short. But as you show us in your passage, there is even more going on that often makes it a challenge to see your work among those who profess faith in you. And so would you help us today by your spirit to clearly perceive what you want us to know about you and what you want us to know about your kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure it's no secret to any of you that over the past... 20 to 30 years, America has become less and less religious. Now, just to give you an idea how quickly this has been taking place, listen to this statistic. In 1992, just over 6% of Americans identified as having no religion. 6% of Americans said they had no religion in 1992. In 2018, that number was 23%. So we went from 6% having no religion to 23%. And the estimate now is that in 2023, that number could be as high as 29%. So, so think about that. 6% no religion in 92. 30 years later, 30%. That is a large number of people who say they have no religion. Now, there are a thousand different factors that go into this sort of thing, and it's impossible to come up with one single simplistic explanation for why so many people are not religious. Um, Ross Douthat in his book, Bad Religion, talks about some of the factors, some of the factors that go into this. One of them that he mentions, and it's the thing that I, I think that we need to deal with, is the sexual revolution. What the sexual revolution has done is it has rendered the plausibility of the biblical ethic of human sexuality to be something that's hard to believe, something that's untenable to many people. And in fact, many Americans think that the Christian sexual ethic is perverse. And so many Americans, they let their instincts about morality, which are informed by the culture, dictate what their religious views are instead of the other way around. Instead of saying, who is God, what does he say? Americans oftentimes will begin with, 
What do I think is true about the world? And is there a religious view out there that matches what I think? And that's the way. And so they let the tail wag the dog. Let's let morality decide what we're going to believe about God instead of what is God, who is God, what does he say? And they see things very backwards. That's one factor, I think, in the decline of religion. Um, Another factor that that Douthat mentioned is that we have a dramatic rise in material prosperity. We we are a well-off nation. And the reality is Christianity often thrives in times when people are suffering and when people feel themselves uh, helpless and when people feel themselves to be in need of transcendent truths. Materialism has a way of stifling spiritual concerns. Um, and, and you don't have to take my word for it. Jesus said it just last week in our passage. He was in the parable of the soil. What did Jesus say? He talks about the soil and he says, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And so I think you have a lot of Americans who are choked by the deceitfulness of riches and the, and the, and the, the desires of the world. And so the word proves unfruitful for so many. Um, another factor is that Christianity has been marginalized as a result of the outworking of the 18th century Enlightenment, which, uh, you know, if you're into the 18th century Enlightenment, then you've thought a lot about this and you, you're like, yes. I think a lot of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Here's what the 18th century Enlightenment did. The thinkers in society promoted self-sufficiency and human reason apart from faith in God. They basically said, we can be good people we can figure out morality. We can figure out life. We don't need God to speak to us. And so a lot of those things have taken root in the way that people think. A lot of them are instinctive and they're not intentional. They're not the sort of things that people meditate upon and think, yes, this is how I'm going to think. It's simply in the air and it's simply how people think now. As far as sheer numbers go, it's certainly true that Christianity, broadly speaking, has declined in the United States in the last 30 years. But you should know this, that it is not a decline across the board. One of the points that needs to be remembered is that there is no religious space that people have been quicker to abandon than the mainline liberal Protestant denominations, which have cratered in the last 20 years. Let me tell you, let me just give you a picture of those numbers. In 1965, there were 4.25 million members of the mainline Presbyterian church. That's not us, by the way. Um, that number today is just over a million. It's dwindling fast, and it will be less than a million before we know it. Maybe it already is. The Episcopal Church in the United States has lost more than half of its membership since 1965. Why has this drop-off been so rapid for the mainline denominations? I will give you one basic answer, and I promise I'm getting to the Bible soon. These, (laughs) These denominations continued to lose members in part Because church attendance is unnecessary if you go to a church that doesn't believe in the authority of Scripture and doesn't believe in the gospel of a real God whose son really rose from the dead in real space and real time. If you you go to a church that believes those things, then church just becomes an unnecessary distraction from the life that you want to live for yourself, right? If, If you go to a church that doesn't really believe these things are true or that they matter, why are you giving your Sundays to that? And I think many Americans are breaking out of that cycle and saying, I don't believe these things. I don't know why I'm even going in the first place. And so they don't. So I want to say this, though, by comparison, denominations that take the Bible seriously, that believe in scriptural inerrancy, they believe in the importance of the Great Commission, have not experienced nearly the exodus of the mainline churches. Uh, Our own denomination, for example, is 10 times the size that it was in 1975. And that is true of other evangelical churches that are theologically conservative. It does not mean that we also don't feel the ebb and flow of social change, but it's a very dramatic difference from what the mainline churches have experienced. And there are reasons, as I say, that you could explain why that is happening But I've had enough conversations with non-Christians now that I'm going to bring an anecdotal factor into this. Um, And it's a dominant issue in our passage today. See, I knew eventually, you knew I would get around to the passage, right? And that factor is the presence of hypocrites in the church. 
Now, as soon as I say that, you might be thinking, Pastor, not you too. Everybody is always picking on the church for hypocrisy. Such an old complaint, not you too. Well, hear me out. Hypocrisy in the church helps explain much of the exodus that's taken place in the church. Because here's what happens. Well, here, let's, let's put it this way. Hypocrites in the church means two things for this data. Here's the first thing. Oftentimes, it is hypocrites who were present in the church who are the quickest to leave when they no longer see the social benefits of being in the church anymore. Right? So, in 1952... Half of Americans attended church on a regular basis, which that just seems amazing, right? Half of Americans in 1952 attended church on a regular basis. Are we to believe that all of those were genuine believers? Why did they go to church? Part of the answer is because they believed the gospel and they wanted to go and hear the gospel and worship God. But another factor is social pressure. And by the way, this is a factor that doesn't exist today. There was social pressure to go to church. Not only did your family expect for you to go, your community expected you to go. In most of the country, if you wanted to, to be a, a prominent person of some influence, then it would be an uphill battle to be in that prominent position if you had no church that you were a part of. Why was that? Social benefits. There was something to be gained by church attendance, and so people came to church. They came to church because they got something tangible from going. Here we are, though, 2023. Um, you know, if this was a Sunday school class, I would start asking you, what are the social benefits of attending church? And the room would be full of crickets, all right? <laughs> and, and the reason is there are very few social benefits to going to church today because today more people than ever come to church, not because of the social pressure, but because... They believe the Bible, and they're curious, or if they, even if they don't believe the Bible, they're curious to hear what Bible-believing people think. They're curious to hear what people who believe the Bible actually say. They want to understand the gospel, maybe. They want to understand the Bible, maybe. But increasingly, there will be fewer and fewer social benefits to be gained by going to church. Now, why am I saying all of this? Because hypocrisy explains the departures to some degree. People didn't believe in the first place, and so when the social benefits are gone, so are they. There's, nothing, there's no reason for me to be here, and so they're gone. They left because they were hypocrites who had nothing to keep them in the church any longer. But hypocrisy also explains the departures in another sense, and this is really the thing I want to focus on today. Because, see, for some, hypocrisy is the excuse why they left uh, in the first place. Ask many people who no longer attend church today. Why do you stay home? Why do you sleep in? Why do you go walk your dog? Why do you go hiking? Why do you wash your boat? Why do you spend the day on yourself? And they will tell you they saw hypocrisy in the church or they had an experience that exposed hypocrisy. And so for some, that hypocrisy became the excuse for their departure. So in either case, to some degree at least, Hypocrisy has something to do with the departure of people from the church and the moment we live in. I've been using the word over and over again. What's hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is when we say one thing, but we live another. There's probably a better definition, but I think that's the easiest to understand. We say one thing, we live another. It's having a divided heart where we preach one thing and we do something very different in our practice. And so actually, my, my plan here is, is not to say to you as a church, you know the church is better than you think, although I think that's true. And my plan is not to say hypocrisy in the church is not a good enough reason to leave a church, although I think that's also true. That's not a good enough reason to leave a church. But instead, my, my plan is to do something very different. I want to show you that we are not so clever in 2023 that we are the first people who ever figured this out. Right? We are not so clever that we only just notice this. Because see, today's passage is one where Jesus is preparing his people for a church that has unbelievers mixed into it. Right? He's, he's expecting hypocrites in the church. While Jesus is busy building a kingdom by rescuing people and bringing them to himself, he wants us to know Satan is also at work. Even within the bounds of the church. But instead of being a source of discouragement, right, Jesus is not saying this to freak the disciples out. 
He's not saying this to frighten the disciples. He's not saying this to discourage them. Instead, he's giving the right perspective on how we can understand how to think about about it when we see professing Christians living hypocritical lives. He's helping us. See, Jesus wants us to know that the church, by its very nature and design, is a mixed body with imperfections in it. Believers and unbelievers gathering in one place. And so if we understand the parable, we will see that Jesus doesn't want us to be distressed if we see spot and blemish in Christ's church. And so briefly, I want to touch on the the first and second point, and then I want to dwell a whole bunch on the third. I'm just going to disproportionately back end the whole sermon towards the end. And so the first point is the work of the farmer. Let's think about the farmer. What's he doing? The second point is the work of the enemy. What is he up to? And then third, we'll see the mixture of the kingdom and what God plans to do about it. And so first this morning, we see the work of the farmer. Um, Just... This is a very simple point. Look at verse 24. It says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field. So so that's the work of the farmer. This is the farmer that did this. The good seed came from the farmer. We know where the origin of the good seed is. I want you to notice two things about that work. First of all, Jesus calls this his field. His field. Uh, Notice that this is Jesus' church here. It's a... It is a world inside of a bigger world, right? The, the field is part of a much larger place, right? The whole earth. And in, in, in the whole earth, this farmer has this one field marked out for himself in which he's working. Um, in verse 38, Jesus says the field is the world. You might hear that and think, okay, so he's talking about the whole world, like the whole universe. You know, he's not just talking about the church. Problem is... The whole discourse is about the kingdom of God, which is distinct from the world. And the parables here have all been about the work of God in and around his people. So if you look at verse 41, notice where the angels gather the crops out of. It says, they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. So when you're thinking about what this field is in the parable, just know that the field is the boundary of the visible church. So he's saying, within this field that's been marked off for Jesus, he says, this is my people, these, this is my field, this is my kingdom. That's who he's talking about here. He's not talking about the worldly people, those who are not part of the visible church, those who are outside of it. He's talking about those who are within the bounds of the visible church. Um, you know, this is not a wild interpretation. Augustine read it this way. Calvin read it this way. The reformers understood this to be the church that Jesus is talking about here. They did not see Jesus teaching a lesson here about life outside of the church. Um, the way Calvin puts it, this parable is, is given for a reason. He says the reason this parable exists is to prevent people from becoming despondent because they see a mixture of good and bad in the church. Right? That's, why, that's why this parable exists, because it can be easy to get really bummed out. Uh, you read bad news stories, you read headlines that are distressing, and, and it's easy for you to feel very down in the dumps as a Christian sometimes when you see what goes on in churches. And Jesus is preparing us to see these sort of headlines. He's preparing us to hear these sort of things. So this is about his field, which is his church. Second, I want you to notice that the seed in this parable represents what Jesus calls the sons of the kingdom. Another word Jesus uses in other places for this group is the elect. This is, this is the term, terminology Jesus uses. This is very typical language for Jesus. He speaks in Matthew 24 of God gathering his elect. He promises that he will give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. Paul speaks of the elect obtaining what Israel failed to obtain by faith. Um, So this is typical New Testament language for people who are true believers. So the subject of election, I think it's too big of a subject to draw out of this passage. But I I want you to at least notice that the, the conviction of Jesus is that God is at work very intentionally and graciously rescuing people here. Or as Jesus puts it, he's sowing good seed and he's causing them to grow and finally, he's the cause for them being harvested. So, so these good seeds in Scripture, sometimes they're referred to as the elect. 
And I think it's a useful term because it goes beyond what we can just see. It represents what's really ultimately true of somebody who belongs to Jesus, someone who's been rescued by Jesus. They are chosen by God. Their individual cared for as a hen cares for her chicks. So that's what the work of the farmer is, right? The planting of good seeds in the field, and that field is the church. So notice all of this work is is spoken of within the boundary of the visible church, right? He's assuming everybody that's part of his kingdom is in the church, which is something we can get to later on in Matthew. Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 both deal with more with church membership. But second today, we see the work of the enemy, right? It's not just the farmer who's at work. Somebody else is at work too. Notice verse 25. It says, The enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat, and went away. And then in verse 38, he explains the weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Um, there's a Greek word Jesus uses for the weeds here. It actually sounds like the name of a flower, Zazanian. Doesn't it just sound like, isn't there, there must be a flower out there called a Zazanian. Um, when I was looking at different interpretations of this passage, uh, the ESV Archaeological Study Bible uh, and then one of my other commentaries said that they think this is a reference to what's called darnel ryegrass. Um, here's the thing about darnel ryegrass. It's basically impossible to distinguish from wheat, except for its height. Uh, the wheat and the rye look very similar. They're almost the same height. And what makes darnel ryegrass so insidious is that you can't uproot the, the ryegrass when it's young, right? Because... Because they all look the same. If you were to go out to the field where the wheat is growing and the darnel ryegrass is growing, you would look out and you would see just green wheat. That's what you would see. Um, one of my first jobs as a teenager, and it might have been my first job, I'm not sure, but it was one of my first jobs as a teenager and my job was pulling rye. And so my friend Jarrett Byer comes to me one day and he says, Adam, do you want to make $100? dollars <laughs> A hundred dollars? I'm 15 years old. You might as well ask me if I want a new truck. Yes, of course. I want a hundred dollars. What do I have to do? Um, And so he said, hey, just come with me. It's going to be great. We're going to ride around on my four-wheeler. And so we went out into the fields uh, behind his house. His father owned a wheat field, a lot of wheat fields, actually. And our job was to ride at top speed through these country roads. So fun flat Kansas, no danger to be seen, no trees, no villains hiding behind trees, no one can hide in Kansas. And we rode through the fields, and our job was to look out into the fields, and you couldn't do it early on in the wheat's life cycle. You had to do it later because by then the the rye gets just high enough that you can catch it. And we would see patches of rye out in the wheat, and our job was to trudge through the wheat. Hopefully the field wasn't muddy, but you never knew. And you go out, and you find the rye, and you pull it up by the root. Now, I was very bad. I grabbed the rye up, and then I would just throw it down again in the field. <laughs> I thought, ah, oh, this is great. As long as it's not in the ground, it's fine. And then we would get back to the road, and Jared would have these arms full of rye, and he'd be like, where's your rye? And I'd be like, ah. Oh. <laughs> uh, you, did, you did pull up the rye, right? And I said, yeah. I, I did definitely pull it up. I, I, I don't know where it is now, though. And so <laughs> he's like... All right, Adam, you have to pull the rye up completely. Now, I did this other thing, too, that was really naughty, and this is not part of the story, but I would also just stomp down the rye for a while. And I know there's an illustration there. I know there's a sermon illustration. Someday you'll hear it. I just stomp the rye down and not actually pull it out. Eventually, he got me in line. He was a good boss, and he got me to earn my $100. But, you know, we we had to go through the fields and pull up this rye because it would make the the crop less valuable. His father wouldn't make as much from the, the crop if they found lots of rye in it. And so here's the thing, though. If that rye was just even a tiny bit shorter, we would have had no idea. And until you, much later in the wheat's life cycle, you can't do that work. And, and that's what Jesus is talking about, right? Weeds that look just like the wheat, right? Weeds that, at least for the moment of necessity, need to sit side by side with the seed as they grow up together. Why? Because they look the same. What does it mean that they look like the good seeds? It means... You could not look at them and know for sure that they weren't wheat or rye. You could only find out by opening the kernels and seeing what was inside of them, right? You have to kill it just to find out what it is. 
So they're outwardly a perfect match for what's supposed to be growing in this field. So you see the work of the enemy here is one of discrediting the crop. It's also a work of discouraging the growth of the good seeds, right? The, the rye is stealing the nutrients that should be going to the wheat. And so if some of the nutrients for the good seed can go to these seeds, perhaps the enemy thinks he can overthrow the farmer. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. That's the sort of thing that's happening in this field. It's what makes the work of the enemy so insidious that it's so hard to tell the good and the bad apart. So then third today, we have the mixture of the kingdom. So, you know, piece together the two things we observed already. You have good seed planted by the farmer. You have bad seed planted by the enemy. They are together in the same field, growing up in the same field, growing up alongside of each other. They look like each other. So what this means is that in some sense, the church in this world has unbelievers growing up in it alongside of genuine believers. That's how all of this ultimately comes together. This is the story Jesus is telling. Uh, I mentioned before that Augustine and and Calvin and, and the Reformers made that point about this parable that Christians can sometimes be distressed because in the church you see this mixture of good and bad. You see failures. Um, you see things fall apart. And, and sometimes that's because we're hypercritical of others. We're looking for something to complain about. We're looking for something that we're upset about. Um, and Jesus confronts that hypercritical attitude somewhere else. Okay, But sometimes our instincts are right and we can just see symptoms of the presence of weeds mixed in with the wheat. Sometimes there are wolves among the sheep, to mix the metaphors just a bit. Um, Thinking about this requires us to distinguish between the church that we can see and the church that God can see. And, God, and that's not an artificial distinction that we just make up. That's, that's Jesus doing it right here in the parable, right? The, these things aren't necessarily the same thing. To be part of the invisible church is not necessarily to be part of the visible church. But to be part of the visible church also doesn't mean you're part of the invisible church. Um, That's a distinction that the reformers made. That's language that they use, but they're using the same ideas here. Uh, There's a a mistake called the word concept fallacy where we think a phrase has to be used or it's not true. Um, Or we think if a phrase gets used in scripture, then it must be what's being talked about. And so we can make the mistake of going, well, look, I don't believe in the invisible church because, or because there's no such thing as the phrase invisible church in Scripture. Or I don't believe in the visible church because there's no phrase visible church in Scripture. And yet Jesus is actually giving us the concepts of the visible and the invisible church here without using those words. Those words are just useful ways of recalling the ideas that are being talked about here. So when, when, the, when the reformers used the term invisible church, what they meant was true believers, those who deep down in their hearts have been rescued and saved by God, they're elect, they're going to persevere to the very end. Um, I mean, you know, raising that subject becomes difficult because you want to know, how can I tell, how can I tell? And then look at the parable, though, and what Jesus would say is, you can't tell. The point of the parable is that they look the same. The point is that they look the same. Um, When they spoke of the visible church, here's what what they meant, though. What they meant was all professing believers the world over and their children. That's, That's what the visible church is. And so, obviously, we know from Scripture that some people profess faith and they don't actually possess faith. They profess it, but they don't possess it. Um, Jesus said on the last day, it's, it's a hard passage to hear, but Jesus did say this, that on the last day there would be some who profess faith and he would say to them, I never knew you. Um, when I preach to you, Evergreen, when I preach to you as a church, I preach to you as a mixed church. I preach to you as the visible church. Um, I don't know if you notice this, but when I look out in the room, I I presume for the most part that I'm speaking to born-again Christians, and that's because I've talked to you. The elders of this church have interviewed you. We've heard credible professions of faith. Um, I've seen your love for each other. I've seen your love for God in action in many cases. I've seen your sincere hearts, and I've I've seen what you are like, and I feel confident that the members of our church have made credible professions of faith. But I also can't infallibly know the mind of God. 
Um, none of our elders can infallibly know the mind of God. I, I do also know from God's word that there can be false professions among us. I know there could be visitors who've never heard the gospel and, and they need to at least hear it for at least a hundredth time. We all need to hear it you know, over and over and over and over again. And so when I preach, I preach in such a way that I am continually inviting you to trust in Jesus, right? This is something old saints need to hear. This is something that prospective saints need to hear. But I try, I try to preach in such a way that the sermon applies to you whether you are a believer in Jesus or not. Because I know that the field here, according to Jesus, is a mixture of wheat and tares, all living alongside of each other. And so it's my earnest hope that the number of weeds in our field is very small. But we can't have God's perspective. We only have our limited perspective as finite mortals. Now, why do we even need to talk this way? Why not just gear all of the sermon towards those who are saved and just assume everyone here is saved? Well, the reason is something that's intrinsic to the parable, right? The the parable is informing actually how we should do this. God knows who the members of the invisible church are, but we don't. And instead, we are servant, the servants in the parable, right? And what do the servants in the parable do? They say, we can't tell the difference, right? And Jesus says that too, right? God says to us, you can't tell the weeds from the wheat yet. I, I know the difference, but you don't. So cultivate and water and care for all of them. And I will be the one to sort good from bad one day, not you. So our job is to water and to nourish and to serve. Our job is not to do the sorting. In other words, he knows very well that this crop is a mixture of good and bad seed. Right? We, we speak this way because we are limited as servants. We don't see what God sees. Uh, we can't know what God knows. So what's the plan of Jesus? The plan is for us to call the church that we can see the people who profess faith and their children, the visible church, and to minister to the visible church. And we call the people that have true faith the invisible church because God knows those who are his. But only he knows who they are. If there is a church in this world, then it must be a visible church. That's what the church is. So until the time that God shows otherwise, we count all professing believers as part of Jesus' church, but the visible-invisible church distinction helps us at least. It helps us to explain what exactly we mean when we say that. In this passage today, Jesus is not speaking of the invisible church. He is not talking about the good seeds here. He's really fixated on the weeds, isn't he? This is a passage about the weeds and the fact that they are sown in among the good seeds. In other words, Jesus is here talking about the visible church this morning. Now, this is why I I spent so much time at the beginning talking about the issue of hypocrisy in the church. Because Jesus says we should expect that any church on earth and any professing believer on earth is going to be more or less pure. We should expect it because either a hypocrite is someone who's a Christian that needs to repent of his hypocrisy or a hypocrite is someone who professes faith but doesn't follow the Lord at all. But in both, both cases, they live in the church. Now, the fact that we can't know for certain if someone is a member of the invisible church doesn't mean that we don't have expectations for those who profess faith, right? Um, Got to throw a Herman Bovink quote in every now and then. He says, while election is the foundation of the church, it only manifests itself in faith and good works. So... So we hold each other to the standard of God's word and we mourn that we don't live up to the high bar that Jesus has set for us because we don't. But Jesus reminds us ultimately he knows those who are his and there is perfect security in trusting in him. So Jesus is is saying that there are two kingdoms living alongside of each other mixed together in this visible church. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of Satan. And we either are the seed of the farmer or we are the seed of the enemy. There's no in-between seed in this parable. Uh, You're either one kind of seed or the other. So Jesus is saying he knows about hypocrisy in the church. He expects hypocrisy in the church. And he's telling us he will do something about it. He won't tolerate it forever. The church will not always be hypocritical. 
There is coming a day when Jesus will act. And when he acts, those who do not belong will be ultimately removed, and those who belong will be washed of any trace of hypocrisy. That's what Jesus is telling us in this parable. But we live in the here and now. And you know, in the here and now, it is distressing to have a brother or sister who doesn't live up to God's standards. Jesus gives us directions for confronting that in Matthew 18. And that passage in Matthew 18 is a passage that's very optimistic. It's a passage about confronting a brother so you can win the brother. He expects that's going to happen. So even inside of the mixture of the church, it's not like he says, well, you know, the the church is just really a, a miserable place. You're either in or you're out. Um, He's saying this is a place where because you are here, you get to hear God's word and be warned and you get to be steered away from your sin and back towards Jesus. It is upsetting when we see hypocrisy in others. It should be really upsetting when we see hypocrisy in ourselves. But in neither case is Jesus caught off guard. I want you to think about how patient the farmer is in this parable. Um, I grew up in the farming world, you know, right in the middle of Kansas. Farming is hard, patient work because you plant seeds and then you just wait forever, right? You, you cultivate what you have and you do a lot of, of waiting. It's worse than fishing. I don't know how many of you like to fish. If you ask me to come fishing, I will come fishing with you because I'm drawn to water, uh, but not because I like fishing, right? Um, you know, farming is, is, is worse than, than fishing because, you know, you don't plant and then sprinkle miracle grow and then later the same day you go out and get your harvest. It's months and months of effort and fertilizing and cultivating and, and fighting off pests. Only when it's harvest time do you, get to, do you get to go and get the crop, right? So farming is, requires an incredible level of patience, something I do not have. Um, my dad worked with farmers, and one of the things he found was that the time after planting the seeds and before the harvest was the most nerve-wracking for the farmers. And my dad's job was to help them get good crops. And so they would come into his office and just yell at him. Um, because they were so angry. They just knew it wasn't going to be enough. The yield wasn't going to be enough. And my dad was always getting in trouble with them because their crops weren't doing what they wanted them to do. That period in between is a nerve-wracking time. You have to develop an incredible amount of patience. Well, guess what? God is the farmer in this parable, and he is incredibly patient. We're far less patient than God. Christians can be impatient and... And their critics can be even less patient, by the way. But as Christians, we should ask the Lord to give us a dose of his patience, a dose of his perspective. You know, we really need God's perspective. We, we see one thing in the church, and sometimes we can just say, oh, no, something terrible has happened. And something terrible has happened. But we, but we sort of go off the rails, and we just think something unexpected is going on. What's going on? And Jesus says, it's not unexpected. You're just impatient. Um, 2 Peter 3, 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. You know, we always stop right right there in the quote, right? (laughs) We don't read the rest of it. But listen to the rest of what he says. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Think of this letter. This is a letter written to a church. This is a gathered body of the church. And Jesus and Paul is saying to them, God is taking his time because some of you need to repent. Do you ever think about this passage that way? He's saying God is patient toward you. He's he's saying you as a church, you as a gathered church, he wants you to repent. There are people in this church who need to repent. That's what Peter is saying. You know, so often we read this passage, we think he's patient toward, toward you and he must be talking about the whole world. I think he's much more locally focused than that. This is a congregation of people where many of them have sin in their life and they, and they won't let it go and they won't repent. And he's saying, God is patient toward you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that you should all repeat, reach repentance. In other words, in the church, there are people who need to repent. Listen to it this way, Peter's saying, there are hypocrites in the church. 
And he's, and he's saying, God has not come back yet. Christ has not returned. He's giving you an opportunity to turn and repent. God is giving you all more time. God is so patient. And he is patient to give people time and opportunity to repent and truly come to him from the heart, not hypocritically, not as a performance, but in true repentance. I am sorry, God. Change me. Make that passage in Romans 6 true of me. Make that prayer, the prayer of the people that we did, true of me, oh God. Would you help me to count myself dead to sin? Christian, would you have the same patience with the church that God has? With your fellow Christians that God has? And remember that our God is a patient farmer. Would you be the patient? Would you be patient too? You see immaturity, you see hypocrisy, then you're in the right place. It means that you follow the directions, you came to the right building because the church is a place where immature Christian and hypocrites live and strive toward the Lord. Right? This is God's design. It's not an accident. Now, he doesn't want us to stay that way. He's at work changing his people and he's growing us up. And hopefully, Lord willing, a year from now, you are more mature than you were a year before. But that work is not an instantaneous thing. There is no miracle grow here. There's no microwave solution to growth. So Christians should be patient with others in the church. Why? Because our God is at work and he's cultivating and he's watering. Um, Do you notice this about the farmer? Until the time of harvest finally comes, he makes sure that all the seeds get the same water, the same nourishment, the same cultivation, the same opportunities, regardless of whether or not they are weeds or seeds. In other words, the farmer gives generously to all. He employs what we might call a judgment of charity. He doesn't say, well, this one's elect, I'll water it. That other one's not elect, I'm not going to water it. So there's a lesson here for us. And this, this reality of the mixed church should not lead to any kind of suspicion among us trying to decide who is or isn't elect. Remember, we aren't the ones who do the sorting. Jesus doesn't tell the story to teach us to sort the elect from the non-elect. He doesn't even tell this parable so that we can tell the difference, right? And instead... Instead of trying to scrutinize each other, Jesus tells his people to help each other along, share the same means of grace, assume the best about each other, see one another as brothers and sisters, right? So let's employ the same judgment of charity in the church that God does when he sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. Now, I want to say a word to another crowd that I haven't addressed in this message yet, and that's skeptics. Um, The sort of who sort of stand in judgment over the church. Um, and maybe, maybe you're not actually a skeptic, you don't think of yourself as a skeptic, but you're a Christian, you've been hurt by professing believers before, and you've had encounters with members of the visible Church of Christ, people who profess faith in Jesus, and, and they hurt you. Either they did it intentionally or they did it unintentionally, um, but, they, but they hurt you deeply and they hurt you seriously. Um, you know, this is the sort of person that you don't, you're not an enemy of God, you don't hate the church, but you've been bruised and you've been hurt. Um, I want to speak to both of those kind of people this morning. First of all, I know that God takes, you need to know that God takes sin within the church seriously. Uh, Peter says, judgment begins with the house of God. Right? That is why Jesus has so much instruction for church discipline in the scripture. There is, there's so much. Not, not even in the letters of Paul, but we're talking about Jesus' own writings. Jesus is like, church discipline is important. Jesus spent so much time on this because he wants to see pain and sin and division addressed. Right? His plan is not, well, you're all forgiven, so you know, behave like a bunch of monsters here on earth, and we will sort it out in the eschaton, right? in the someday. We'll deal with it. That's not Jesus. He actually wants sin and division and to be confronted this side of the cross. Now, it doesn't happen perfectly, but Jesus cares about it. Even when the church as an institution in some way or another fails or doesn't adequately deal with sin in its midst. So that's the first thing I want to say. Jesus cares about this. He takes it seriously. If you are a skeptic, you should just understand that God is not indifferent to what it takes place in the church. He hates sin, and he hates sin in his church, and he promises to deal with it. But the second thing I want to say, though, is 
I want to encourage you to change your expectations about people within the church. Um, Here's what I mean. By design, the church is meant to be a place where sinners can come and find the gospel and be helped towards the Lord. So the church is not, you know, you never see the church pictured as a trophy room, right, in scripture. Um, Instead, it is a hospital. And nurses and doctors will tell you hospitals are full of sick people. If you have a hospital that doesn't have any sick people in it, it's because they're all dead. Right? <laughs> like a, a hospital, by design, is full of people, people who need grace. The only kind of person who needs the grace is someone who is a sinner. And so if the person who has sinned professes faith in Christ, the person who sinned against you is a sinner, if they're in the church, it means they've admitted that they're a sinner. That's why they're here in the first place. And so in some sense... Their sin is in keeping with what we believe about Christians and what Christians profess about themselves. They came because they are a hypocrite who must admit that they are a hypocrite in the first place, even to join the church. So it's not like you discovered hypocrites in the church. That's the design. It's full of hypocrites. But third, if you're angry or saddened because... You can still see remnants of sin. You can still see the hypocrisy in the church. I want to gently and compassionately encourage you to a a moment of self-reflection for yourself. And I want to ask this question, how free of hypocrisy is your own life? Right? You who stand in judgment over the church, you who see hypocrisy in the church, how free of hypocrisy is your own life? You know, Paul... Paul sort of pushes his readers to, the, to do this kind of self-reflection in, in Romans 2. You know, in Romans 2, Paul is, is addressing the, the critical person. And he, and he says, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Um, you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. What's Paul doing here? He is looking at the person who expects better from other people. And he says, Fine, but what about you? And so this is a biblical thing to sort of turn the tables on the accuser and just say, how are you doing? I think it's a healthy thing for us to do. So let me ask it. What about you? If you stand in judgment of others, if you're discouraged with others, maybe, maybe you're hurt or, or you're angry because of others, do you realize that you need grace too? Do you see how far your own heart is from from what it's meant to be? Do you realize that that your life doesn't line up with your convictions or what, what, what the law of God says? Do you see that about yourself? You know, I mentioned before, we're we're one or the other seed. We we can't be both. Whatever you think about yourself or what you are, don't let it stop you from coming to Christ. And let's say right now you don't believe, you say, Well, I must be of the devil, there's no hope for me. Not so fast. That's not how Jesus has talked throughout all of the gospel of Matthew so far. Because in the rest of the book, he is constantly holding out hope to the worst of society that there is life for them too. It's why he goes and eats with sinners and tax collectors. It's why people think, oh, look at the company he keeps with. He must be a drunkard and a glutton, right? He does this precisely because he believes that there is hope to be held out to people. It's why he sits with the lowdown in society, because people can repent and people can come to him. You see, if you realize that your life isn't perfect, if you realize that you're a sinner, then you aren't far from the kingdom of God. Don't write yourself off. Jesus doesn't send you away. He invites you to come. And he doesn't promise quick transformation necessarily. Instead, he tells us that if we'll repent... He'll forgive us, first of all, and then he's going to do a work in our hearts to shape us and gradually make us more and more like Jesus. But that means stumbles along the way. Right? That thing that you see in the Bible that Christians aren't like, God sees it too. God sees it too. It's not just you. Uh, He loves his people too much to leave us that way. Um, By design, we're all works in progress. So here's what you actually see in the Bible. That Jesus is inviting you to join that number because believe it or not, we are all rife with hypocrisy. We wish we weren't, but we are. The only person I can find, I've combed the Bible over. 
And the only person I can find in the Bible who is not a hypocrite is the guy who's preaching the sermon in the text. It's Jesus. He's the only non-hypocrite in all of the church. And so I can't point to myself. I can't point to any professing believer on this planet and say, see, see that elder over there, see that deacon over there. See, Christians can live up to their profession because eventually you will look close enough and you'll see that they don't, right? See, look close enough and you will be very distressed by remaining sin. I, I include myself there. But here's what you can do instead, and it's far better than any other option. Look to Jesus. Don't look to a, a human. Don't look to a person. Don't look to someone in the church to find your model. Because the closer you look at Jesus, you only see greater things. The, the closer you look at Jesus, the, the more you realize there's not even a hint of hypocrisy. There's not even the smallest grain of sand of hypocrisy in that man. When he preached about love, he loved. When he condemned hatred or adultery, he had a pure heart all the way down. And see, if you look close enough at the Christian this side of glory, guess what you will see? You will not like what you see. Does that mean that we abandon the Christian faith? No. Because it hangs on Jesus. It's never hung on the Christian Um, every Christian has failed and disappointed. Jesus has never failed. Jesus has never disappointed. All of this hangs on Jesus, not men, and not even the mixed body that is the church. It doesn't hang on that. And if you take your eyes off of his followers and you start to track him instead, you will find a sure and safe hope. And you'll find that he is perfectly capable of taking your own sin and your own hypocrisy on himself, and giving you his righteousness instead. Let's pray together. Oh God, we do fall short. We are not what we should be. We're not who we should be. Yet. But we pray this is the case. I I pray that it's true of every person in this room. I pray it's true of everyone hearing my voice today that you would be at work shaping us to look like Jesus, gradually working away at our hearts, growing our love, compelling us to reconcile those both within and without the church whom we've hurt, either with our words or with our actions or with our thoughts. We ask you to beautify your church so that your beauty can be clearly seen in us. I pray that you would also protect people from discouragement when we see how far short your people fall. It is discouraging. Would you protect us from that discouragement? Would you protect us with the knowledge that you do care and you do deal with sin because you love us and because you love your own good name? To the praise of your glorious grace, O God, would you do these things? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.